talked last week about the confession as a whole, and we, we did uh, an overview of this confession. And what we saw, at least how one brother has, has broken it down, is that there was four large units of the confession. There's 32 chapters, but we broke it down even further than that. And we saw that the first six chapters, we said, were first principles or first things, sort of foundational doctrines that come first that we need to get right. Then it was covenant. Then it was Christian living, boundaries and freedoms. And then it was last things. And so we're starting chapter one of the section on first principles, chapter one of the whole thing. But this is sort of the foundation of the foundation in chapter one of the confession. We talked last week about this section being the uh, principium cognoscendi or the principle of knowing. Right. So we're going to talk today as we think about the Bible and revelation. How do we know anything about God? How do we know doctrine? How do we know theology? How do we know the gospel? And so this chapter of the Confession, the Puritans, starting with the Westminster Confession, are setting basically an epistemology of Christian doctrine. Epistemology is a fancy word for the study of, of knowledge, right? how do we know things. So how do we know God? How do we know God truly? How do we know the, the, the fact that God is triune, the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that came to give his life? We know these things through the Holy Scriptures. Now, I've said all along that I was going to do a chapter a night. And here we are in chapter 1, and I apologize, but with all that's been uh, going on the last couple days, the lecture will be a little bit shorter tonight. Um, but I think it's helpful just that I wanted to spend a decent amount of time on the first paragraph because I think it's important. We said that um, the, the confession will often have a paragraph that sort of sums up the chapter in the beginning. It's sort of a summary, introductory statement to the whole, and I think that is true tonight. So if you have, a, you have an outline, you see there we have six points on the outline, uh, the necessity of Scripture in chapter 1, the identity in chapters 2 and 3, the authority of Scripture in chapters 4 and 5, the sufficiency of Scripture in chapter 6, the clarity or the perspicuity, as Tom Askell says, we've chosen an unclear word to talk about the clarity of the Bible, um, but that's in chapter 7, and then chapters 8 and 10, we are calling the use of Scripture, its transmission, interpretation, and how it relates to controversies. Um, I'm going to be, it's, it's hard to, to cite and give credit to everyone. Um, I believe, I'm sort of, I'm helped by a lot of men, James Renahan tonight, B.B. Warfield, um, our two key helps, Sam Waldron. Um, so forgive me if I don't give them in credit as I should. I just want to say that from the beginning. Um, so, so let's just dive right into it. Number one there is the necessity of the Bible. The necessity of the Bible. The Puritans, with the first chapter being on the Bible, want us to see that it is necessary for us to have saving knowledge about God. We need the scripture. So let's open up to chapter one, paragraph one. I'm reading from this little black copy, which is the old fashioned version. If you have one of the modernized versions, that's great as well. Those are um, excellent as well. So paragraph one, 
chapter 1. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable or without excuse, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at some sundry, <coughs> excuse me, sundry times or different times and in diverse manners, different ways, to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. The former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now completed. Maybe you can see why I've said it is going to be a challenge to get through. Uh, there's a lot there, right, in these chapters. So we're not going to try to do a word-for-word -word sort of understanding. We'll, we'll look at this paragraph much more than we will the others. But let me pray one more time. Father in heaven, we come now to the study of the doctrine of the Bible. Um, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, as we just read in David's words, the law of the Lord is perfect, and it revives the soul. And your word is, is breathed out. The, the Bible, we believe, is, is breathed out by God, is inspired of God, and is profitable for man. It is sufficient for us, for training in righteousness, for reproof and correction, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, God, we confess these things to be true, that your word is divine revelation, uh, that, it is, that it is able to save men. And so we pray that we might have a right understanding of the doctrine of Scripture, that we might know what the word is and uh, what, are its, what is its identity and characteristics. And so, uh, Lord, we pray this night that this teaching would be profitable for us, that you'd give us understanding, that you'd give us help, that you would uh, encourage us through this time, that, that we might once again be reminded of the incredible treasure that we have in our hands, the blessing and privilege that it is to hold the Word of God in our own language, to have it for us preserved even to this day. And so we give you praise. May we treasure your Word as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have in this chapter different types of revelation. We have general revelation and special revelation. I'm sure, likely, these are maybe categories you've heard before. If not, that's perfectly okay. Um, but I want to begin with general revelation, and then we'll get into special revelation. Let me make sure that I turned this thing off. It says there about halfway through, I'm going to skip down a bit in the paragraph and then jump back up. Firstly, I want to see the reality of general revelation. It says there that although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God 
as to leave men inexcusable. So the confession asserts that there are three modes, three types of general revelation. We saw them there. The light of nature, the works of creation, and the works of providence. And it says that these modes, if you will, of revelation are able to manifest to man the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God. And they are able to leave men without excuse. Does anybody have a passage in the New Testament that comes to mind that is largely being referred to here? There's more than one. Um, there's a place where the Bible says that men are without excuse because of creation. Where is that at? Romans chapter 1. Good job, Asher. Romans chapter 1. Uh, yes, where Paul says there that man is without an apologetic, without an excuse. That creation testifies to the, the divine nature, even, of God. And so what are these three things? They're able to leave man without excuse. That means that there will be nary a person on the day of judgment that that is able to stand before God and to say, I didn't know, right? You didn't give me enough information. You didn't, you didn't give me enough lights. You, you should have told me these things. I, I wish I would have known there was a, a God. I would have believed in him. But the confession asserts, because the Bible asserts, that these modes of general revelation are able to make to leave man without an excuse, without, without a, 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 an ability to stand before God and say, I didn't know. And so the first one there is the light of nature. The light of nature. I think this is the one that's the most maybe uncommon. We might read that and assume that it's talking about gen, uh, creation, right? The, the light that nature shows us, the revelation that nature shows us. But it's talking about something a bit different. The light of nature here basically is human reason, human reason, man's capacity and ability to ponder and consider the divine. Now, there's been a lot of debates, if you follow those sort of things, in um, the Reformed-ish world lately about this area of, of doctrine, the light of nature, natural theology. What we are saying is that man is able to reason himself to a God, okay, not the God of the Bible, not to the gospel, not to salvation, but man, because of the image of God, because of the, the uh, desire that God has put in us for worship, that we all know that there is a God. We look, we use the works of creation and the works of providence. We see these things. We ponder our own existence. Have you ever been driving maybe through the forest or through the woods or on a back road or by the ocean and just sort of pondered your own existence? Like, how could this all just be here? How could I be thinking rational thoughts right now? I have a brain that's just a pile of mush, but it can create a piece of classical music or design a, a, an engineer a bridge. It, it, just the mind can do incredible things. And man, in the pondering of his own existence and looking into creation, is able to reason himself to discern that there is something more than me. Amen? There's more to this world than us. Uh, 
William Downing is a pastor down in Silicon Valley. He says it this way, that man is inescapably religious. We can't escape this innate desire to worship. When we studied the book on covenant theology a year or so ago, Dr. Renahan, the son of this Renahan, said something to the effect of you can go to any country in the world all throughout history and men are reaching their hands toward the divine in every single culture. It's only in the last few hundred years because of the advent of the enlightenment and evolutionary theory that men have come to speak of, of atheism. But even that is an, is a, it is an anti-religion that is a religion in and of itself. It's a faith system right? that just denies the existence of God. But it's still a system of belief that man is hanging on to, trying to understand and explain his own existence. And so man has a faculty in himself to reason that there is a God. Only insofar that he's without an excuse. Don't hear me to think that, to say that, that the man on the island by himself can, can reason his way to be saved in Jesus Christ or to know that God is triune that he needs to believe in the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Not that, but man has the ability in himself to discern that there is a God that he owes worship to. That there is a God that we ought to serve. That, that knowledge is corrupted. That knowledge is suppressed. But it is there because of the image of God in man. The second means of general revelation, which is probably the most common one we think of, is creation, all that God has, has made, right? Again, listen to what, to what David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So what he's saying there is that the heavens are a mode of revelation. God is communicating to us something through the heavens, through the earth, through all of the things that he has made. He says that day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, there's not a voice that's heard, right? But you go to the you go to the ocean and you see the awesome reality of the waves crashing down. You hear the storm, or you see lightning strike the the earth, and feel and hear the thunder afterwards. You see these things, and you 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 are awestruck, right? Of the Creator. It's not enough that we might be saved, but it is enough to look around and say, there is something that is greater than me here. There is an incredible mind behind creation. Look at the human body, and we can't help but, but be in awe and wonder of how did this become a thing? One, one, one author, I can't remember who it is, says that it's similar to uh, a beautiful... Um, manicured garden, maybe a, a rose garden. And you come into a rose garden and you see this perfectly manicured garden that is that you can tell has been hours and hours of work that, that, that made this thing as beautiful as it is. And you don't look at that garden and say, wow, look what just randomly happened. You say, man, someone has meticulously cared for this thing. You give glory to the gardener, if you will. You understand that there is a mind behind this beauty that has, yes, taken God's creation and manipulated it in such a way to show off its beauty. And so, too, we look at creation, and, and we don't say, 
wow, look what just randomly appeared. We have to consider, wow, look at the mind behind all of this. Look at the, the you, you sit in a, in a hospital delivery room and see uh, mom there in pain. And all of a sudden, glory, there's a brand new baby. And new life comes into this earth, or at least that we can see life that's been cooking there, brewing there for nine months. And you see something that's actually so common and so natural, but it's such a glorious thing for us to behold. And we say, wow, look what God has done. The third mode of general revelation is the works of providence. Now, the astute listener may have noticed that creation and providence have a chapter unto themselves. And so we'll talk more about those as we move on in chapters 4 and 5. But God's providence is his governing of all things, his care of his universe, his care of our lives, his orchestrating events. And men look back and see just how much order and uniformity that there is in the world. You you don't wake up in the morning and look out your window and wonder, did the sun come up today like it did yesterday? You don't get off your bed and wonder, is gravity going to hold me down? Am I going to shoot up like that fresh birthday balloon and be bouncing off of the ceiling? You just trust that things are going to be as they were because God is in control. God is ordering. And so man looks at creation, sees the sun come up, the sun rise, and the sun set every day. Never questions, is there going to be enough oxygen in the atmosphere today for me to step out of my car and breathe? Am I going? Is the, is the earth going to inch forward a bit more towards the sun and we all melt or inch back a few more feet from the from the sun and we all turn into popsicles right god is 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 governing all of these things he is sustaining the universe the text says by the word of his power and so man looks at all of this and sees the text says there the display of the goodness wisdom and power of god you know we my family and I like to watch, um, you know, these shows, Planet Earth and all of these shows that show off the wonders of God's creation. And it's just an incredible, strange reality. I mean, God has made like 10 million species of birds that are co- covered in rainbows and have the most fascinating designs upon them. When you see the the way that different animals mate and all the dances and just the wild stuff, the bugs and insects. And you look and you say, look at the wisdom of God. Look at the mind of this God. How can, who could think of all of these things? Who could imagine a fish with a light bulb hanging off its head that lights up the surrounding as, it's, as it lives in the depths of the ocean where there's no light? I mean, just fascinating things that you see in creation over and over and over. And they display to us the power of God. They display to us the goodness of God as rain falls on the just and the unjust. God is not excluding those that hate him from the rays of the sun. Their gardens grow as well, just as those that love him and worship him grow. We see his goodness in creation. And it says there that these things leave men (coughs) without an excuse. And so God reveals himself. These are, this is a mode of revelation. And we would say that that general revelation is infallible. 
that it communicates just as God wants it to communicate to us. But secondly, we have to see there the insufficiency of general revelation. We need more if we're truly going to know God and have a relationship with him. And so the text goes on in, in paragraph one still that man is left inexcusable without an excuse, yet these or they, the light of nature, creation and providence, are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. So the Bible is clear that general revelation basically leaves man condemned, right? Gives enough to say you should have known there was a God. I revealed myself enough for you to, to pursue me, to, to, to give obedience as you, as you were able, and to seek the Lord that he may be found. But it leaves man there. It's not enough to know his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Creation does not reveal the triune majestic nature of God. Right? You don't... You don't look at the sunset and say, and, and, and learn there, discern from that sunset that God's son came and offers redemption through a cross. Right? You need God to communicate that to you. We need God to speak to us somehow to have saving knowledge, to have knowledge of the gospel. This question number 60 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, a catechism connected to, to our confession indirectly, but, but very closely related. Ask the question, can they who have never heard the gospel and so know not Jesus Christ nor believe in him be saved by their living according to the light of nature, according to their reason as they understand? Uh, so the question might be asked in a different way. Does the sincere Hindu or the sincere Buddhist or the sincere Muslim or whoever that is sincerely pursuing God and trying to understand how to live according to his natural reason, can that person be saved from an honest and sincere pursuit of trying to live a righteous life before God? The answer is they who have never heard the gospel, know not Jesus Christ, and believe not in him, cannot be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature, or the laws of that religion which they profess. Neither is there salvation in any other, but in Christ alone, who is the Savior only of his body, the church. So we need special revelation from the Lord. That's not to, to knock necessarily anyone that is sincerely pursuing the Lord in a different means. That is just to say, Salvation is exclusive, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, no one can come to the Father but through me. And so it is only through faith and repentance in Jesus that we are saved. And so we need special revelation. We need God to communicate to us his will. Therefore, as we keep reading, because these things are insufficient, therefore, chapter 1, paragraph 1, it pleased the Lord at sundry times, various times, and in diversified manners or various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. 
And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same, that will that he has revealed in various ways, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now completed. So you see in that last statement that the confession is asserting the ceasing or the cessation of special revelation. Now, I don't believe that here it's necessarily trying to be exhaustive of all of the miraculous gifts necessarily, um, although this is a, a, a cessationist document when it comes to the ceasing of the miraculous gifts in the sense that men uh, receive the gifts for themselves as if, uh, like, I would have the gift of healing, right, or speaking in tongues. They, they understand those to be ceased. But here it's speaking primarily of revelation from God, prophetic revelation, that God revealed himself in many ways, through prophets, through visions, through dreams, through words, through a burning bush, with a, with a hand that wrote revelation on a wall, through a donkey, right? God revealed himself in the Old Covenant in many different ways, but those ways have now ceased. Thus, it is necessary that his will be inscripturated, be preserved for us. So in the past, men could be saved without the Bible. Yes or no? What was that? No? So there was a time before the Bible existed, right? Uh, and men were being saved before that time. So what saves us is revelation, redemptive revelation, right? If you, wit if you were a witness of God's saving acts, you could have faith in God through those acts and be saved. I.e., Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham had faith and he believed in the light that God gave him in his day, right? We praise God that we have all of this today, amen? We have far more understanding than Abraham did in his day. But Abraham had enough to lay hold of what God had told him to believe that by faith and to be saved through that revelation. So he was saved without, as we understand it, a written word. Noah was a man of faith, right? He believed God, he trusted God, and he was saved. Um, Moses comes along and writes, as we understand it, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, a question that scholars, Christians have that I don't think we can answer is what happened before that? What sort of revelation was there? Um, I think it's probably clear that in some form, God helped reveal things to Moses as he writes the Genesis account. Right? He has a lot of information. It may, not be, it may also be true that there was oral tradition that was being passed down. I think there may be a mix of both. But there was no Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, before Moses comes along as we understand it. 
right? But Abraham was alive 500 years before Moses comes along, 400 years before Moses comes along. And so God is saving people. God is doing redemptive acts, the Passover lamb, the exodus. These are things that you looked at, you believed God, and you could be saved. But those acts are few and far between. If, 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 if we had to be witnesses of the cross to be saved, then we'd be in trouble, right? It'd only be one generation, a very small group of people that had access to salvation. And so what the confession is saying is that these acts of God needed to be put into written form to be preserved. They also needed to be put into written form so that they could be protected from corruption. It said there, for the sure establishment and comfort of the church, he gives us the word, for the against the corruption of the flesh, against the malice of Satan and of the world, right? You might have emperors and leaders and dictators that might try to take the Bibles or, or corrupt the oral tradition. Um, and so God has given us his word by necessity in written form. In Jesus' day, we understand that they use the Hebrew Bible, right? Jesus had what we might call today the Tanakh, the Old Testament. We now have the New Testament as well. And so secondly, as we consider then special revelation, the, the confession talks about the necessity of it, the need of inscripturated revelation, the need of God's saving acts to be written down and preserved for us. Let me just pause for a little bit and for any questions or feedback. Maybe I'm getting some looks, maybe not. I'm not a good judge of people's body language, but I just want to, I've said a lot, maybe it's time for a yes, yeah, sorry, I, I went from calling it special to redemptive, and I meant the same thing there, and so what we, what we need to get saved is special revelation, redemptive revelation. Um, maybe I can say it like this. If you had never heard of Christianity and you walked into a church and you had never touched a Bible and the preacher preaches the gospel, never reading from a text or quoting directly the scripture, could you be saved? Certainly, right? If someone preaches the gospel to you just without referencing actual Bible verses, it's probably rare that you share the gospel and are just quoting pure scripture, right? You're, you're, you're paraphrasing, you're rehearsing God's redemptive acts. And so we need that revelation, whether it's read in the scripture or preached to us. That's how we get saved as we learn of what God has done, what we need to do to respond. And we believe those. Um, so these things could be preserved and not be corrupted. God's given us the word and the confession is saying that it's necessary. It's not just a, uh, we're, we're more blessed to have it, but it's needed. Um, but yes, those those men were saved because they had Words from God, if you will, prophetic words, redemptive words, and they believed those things. Amen. So prophetic revelation has ceased. The church continues to expand. God preserves his word for future generations. And so let's go back to the very beginning of the, of the paragraph now where we started and consider scripture as, as the rule, as the rule. Um, this is an important, very important statement. First sentence of the confession. It says this, 
1.1, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So what's interesting is that this sentence right here is not in the Westminster Confession, and it's not in the Savoy Declaration. Um, remember we said that the parent document of this confession is the Savoy Declaration, and the grandparent, if you will, is the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is the origin. Uh, you, you'll pick up their confession, the Presbyterians use, and it will be almost identical. When you get into the contents, there's differences. This chapter is almost completely the same as chapter 1 from the Westminster Confession, but this is a key thing that the Baptists added, this statement here. So why do they add this? It's a very strong, helpful statement about the Bible. There's a couple likely reasons. Um, you know, with anything like this in history, when they don't put a footnote there and say, hey, we're going to add this because of this, it's always going to be, you know, we're investigating, we're trying to understand what was happening in the day, why, why were they, what were they responding to? Um, there's a couple likely reasons they would add this sentence. The first one is the advent of the Quakers. We've all probably heard of Quakers, um, but they were becoming a thing more and more in this day. Um, we might relate Quakers to modern-day Pentecostals, not direct, not completely, but there's definitely some connections. So the, the Quakers placed... Uh, prophecy or prophetic revelation that they understood of the spirit above the bible right and they practiced they believed in something called the inner light that man had the spirit in him and so they would come together and they would prophesy if you will and these prophetic utterances they saw as more authoritative than the scriptures and apparently the quaker movement was a bit of a problem for the particular baptist one church in the 1650s lost about 25% of its membership to the Quakers. Um, and so they were, they were trying to assert here strongly the only sufficient revelation from God that we need for saving knowledge, for man to be saved and to walk in obedience, that it is the Bible. Um, secondly, this one's a bit more involved, but... Um, it's, it's likely in response to arguments from the Presbyterians. Uh, the Presbyterians were arguing from um, necessary inferences that, that infant baptism should be found in the Bible. Um, one, more, one more piece of chapter 6. Let me see if I can open this. One more piece of chapter, of chapter 1, excuse me, that they changed is important, is uh, 1.6 is a line there that it's always good to do this kind of stuff on the spot. Um, so paragraph 6 of chapter 1 says that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. They added that statement, necessarily contained. Now, the Presbyterians said it this way. Um, 
that everything necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith in life, is either expressly set down or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced. And so the Presbyterians were saying, you see these two realities, they're very similar. We can deduce there that, that this is true. We have circumcision. In the Old Covenant, children of covenant families were circumcised, all of them, before they had faith. Thus, now we have the New Covenant, we have baptism, we have families, children in those families, they ought to be baptized because in the Old Covenant, children got the, old, the sign. It's a necessary inference, that they, or that's a consequence of the Scripture that they say it's not explicit, but it's implied. And the Baptists wanted to push back on that and say, and say yes, we make inferences. We have to do theological formulation, um, but it must be necessarily contained. It can't be just sort of haphazardly discerned. And so they're likely adding this as well to assert that our doctrines must be found in the Bible. They must be there articulated. We, we are certainly going to put Scripture together and, and weigh uh, passages against one another and formulate doctrines based on the whole of the Bible. We don't need a proof text for every doctrine, right? There's no clear statement that says in one verse that God is triune, um, but we believe that God is triune because of the whole of the Bible. So let's look at this statement here. It says that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule. So that word rule there is important. And all of those adjectives, sufficient, certain, and infallible, are modifying that word rule. We, we talked about this a couple weeks back, I think, that we said that Scripture is the norm. You remember that? Scripture is the norm. It is the rule that rules. The Oxford Dictionary uh, defines that word rule like this. I think I put this in your notes. A standard or a standard of discrimination or estimation, a criterion or a test. So the Bible is the test. The Bible is the authority. The Bible is the rule or the standard. You, you have a ruler, and what does it do? It tells you the length of a, of a foot. It is the standard that we, that we would go by. And so the Bible is the rule. It is the rule that rules all other rules. It is the standard that we, that we are to go by. It is the test. Thomas Watson says the word is a rule of faith. The scripture is a perfect canon containing in it all things necessary to salvation. And they said there that it is the only rule. And so we'll see these three statements that it makes in regards to this standard, in regards to the Bible. Firstly, it is the only sufficient rule. It is the only sufficient rule. So the scriptures teach us everything that is necessary for saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It is sufficient in what it seeks to teach about. Now, if you have uh, a test on calculus, do you open up your Bible to study? Probably not, right? You could try that. Um, if you have to bake a shortbread, do you open up your Bible? You don't, right? So the, the, the Bible is not meant to be exhaustive in all things, but in the things that it seeks to teach, what man is to know about God, how we can be saved, and how we are going to then live in obedience, it is a sufficient rule. It is a sufficient standard for those things. And that word 
saving, that saving knowledge, that's important. Not all knowledge. We don't know everything that we can know about astrophysics from the text of Scripture. But we can sufficiently know all things for life and godliness. Amen. Secondly, it's the only certain rule. It's the only certain rule. Meaning it is a sure record of all that God has chosen to reveal to man. We don't know everything that God has done from the Bible, right? We don't know everything that Jesus ever said from the Bible. We know what God has chosen to give to us. You remember, it's John that he says, if these things I've written to you so that you may believe, in John chapter 20, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he says there that if he was to include everything, all the books of the earth could not contain all that Jesus did. Now he's being a little bit, he's using hyperbole there, right? He's exaggerating a bit to make a point. Um, But his point is there is a lot more that Jesus did and said. He's been selective so that there's enough there for us to know that he's the Christ and to be saved. We would say in our day here, the Bible is certain that the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is inerrant, meaning it's without errors. It's trustworthy. Tom Nettle says this. This is the same idea that is conveyed today by the word inerrant, as used in evangelical discussions. Certain refers to the character of what is actually written. It affirms that nothing misleading or erroneous exists in the Bible. So the Bible has no errors. Amen? Do we believe that? This is where the battle for the Bible has often been fought. You've maybe heard of the conservative resurgence in the 80s and 90s in the Southern Baptist Convention. And the line of the battlefield there was largely the inerrancy of the Bible. Does the Bible contain errors or does it not? And some would say, no, we don't need to say that. Come on, these were fishermen. This thing's been handed down and copied over thousands of years. It can still be God's word, but it was copied and written by men. So it has errors, but it has enough for us to be saved. And as soon as you go down that road, you, 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 you get into trouble, right? Because you start to then be able to say a lot of different things. You start plucking out, and that's, how, that's, that's where we get sort of the, the, the search for the historical Jesus. Maybe you've heard that statement before. And what men start doing is plucking out different stories. Oh, that sounds fake. That sounds made up. That's probably not historic. And before you know it, you have Jesus being a regular man like you and I. but the confession doesn't use that word infallible, or excuse me, inerrant. That's our word. That's modern. It uses the word certain, but it says something even stronger there. It says that the scriptures are the only infallible rule for saving knowledge. Now, infallible doesn't say that the Bible has no errors. It says it cannot have errors. It is incapable of erring because it is the very word of God. Michael Haken, another Baptist historian, Scripture is also infallible, which is a far stronger word than certain or inerrant. To describe something as infallible, it is not merely to assert that it does not err, but to maintain that it can not err. Infallible strengthens certain and belongs with it in just the same way that we would say today that the Bible is infallible and inerrant. And so the Bible cannot be wrong. 
It cannot be untrue. Now, I know that skeptics would say, oh, that's ridiculous. You come to the Bible with presuppositions, and so you don't discern rightly. No, we do come to the Bible with presuppositions because God has revealed to us that it is his word. We'll get into that next week. And so the Bible's necessary. That's point one, and we won't spend that much time on the rest of them, but I thought it necessary, no pun intended, to to camp there for a bit, to see uh, the need of the Scriptures versus general revelation. So when someone says, you know, I don't need church, I go out into the woods to worship God, I go out to the ocean to worship God, we can certainly do that, and we can see the beauty of His creation and, and worship Him, right, and praise Him and give Him glory and honor as day to day, as David says, pours out speech. But if that person never sticks their nose in the word or hears biblical preaching, then they can't have a saving knowledge of God, right? They might worship a generic God, a little g God. They might recognize, man, there's, there's, in, there's intelligent design. There's something behind all of this. But unless they come to special revelation, there will be no true salvation and no communion with Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Agreed, agreed. So, very briefly, uh, the identity of the Scriptures. Chapters 2 and 3. We won't read chapter 2. You see there it's a list of all the books of the Bible. This was important because um, Roman Catholic Church has a different canon of Scripture. That word canon just means rule. We, we might even just say list of, of books. Um, it lists all of the books, Old Testament and New Testament, in the Protestant Bible. And so the identity of the scriptures is the 66 books that we have in a, what we would say is a Protestant version of the Bible. The other books that some recognize were not ever recognized universally in the church as Holy Scripture. I think I wrote it on there that you see that the Apocrypha is not considered Holy Scripture. Now, Roman Catholic Bible has not 66 books, but 73 books. They add, um, what is it, five, seven books to the Old Testament. The Greek and Russian Orthodox have 79 books, or they have 52 books of the Old Testament. And so you see that there are um, others that would try to say that these other books are Scripture but we believe that God has inspired 66 books of holy writ. That is the canon of Scripture. That is the content of God's inscripturated revelation. The Apocrypha may very well be helpful. We don't need to burn the Apocrypha necessarily, but it's as helpful as any other book in the library. It's man's writing. And so there may be books in the Apocrypha, such as Maccabees, that give us insight into the historical situation between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. There's 400 years that we don't have biblical revelation from. Um, But it's not God's word. And so it does not carry the authority anywhere near that God's word does. It may give us a somewhat faithful record of things that went on, but it's not inspired by the Holy Scripture. It hasn't been breathed out by God. And so we can't view those books in the same way that we would view anything else. Yes, yeah. 
and, and they don't carry the same authority or inerrancy. So we want to look at them and discern the history as we would any other history book because they are likely with errors because they're not inerrant. But very much, yes, probably a, a mostly faithful record. Um, but you make a very, you, you nailed it there. They don't give us saving knowledge of Christ. They're a historical record. Um, we'll stop there. We will, I promise, get through the, next, the rest of the chapter next week. Um, we spent more time on chapter 1 um, because I think it was important and foundational. Anything else? Questions? Clarification? All right, let me pray. Our Father, we thank you.